0: another What's Up podcast. We are doing our best to get you guys some uh, good and interesting and also important coverage in as many outlets as we can during these crazy, crazy times. And I am Jocelyn Murphy, the Associate Editor of the What's Up section. And I'm very excited to be talking to our guest today, but also it's under you know very strange circumstances as with everything happening right now. Um, Ergene Kong, am I saying that correctly?
1: Yes. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) Ergene
0: is a um, musician from the area. You're also a professor of music at the University of Arkansas. Is that still correct?
1: Yes. Okay.
0: Um, And we got connected because a mutual friend um, put us in touch because Ergene was just in London um, just a handful of days ago and so we originally connected uh just from to talk about the perspective of you know as a musician what you were seeing internationally as COVID-19 was making its way across you know across the world and you know what you were experiencing there um but being able to talk to you because you're you're from Arkansas and so we had that local tie and then things changed a little bit. Um, <laughs> so just kind of going back over our timeline here, urging, you and I connected on Thursday, March 19th. Um, yes. I think it was very late in the night. Like, you know, you're, you were several hours ahead of us. But essentially, our first email correspondence was Thursday, March 19th. When I, you know, we were saying, let's get connected. Yep, can't wait to talk. When I emailed you again on Tuesday, March 24th, you were like, actually I'm in Chicago now. And so just (laughs) in that brief window of time, you, everything changed. So walk me through those couple of days. Where were you on the 19th? Did you, did you already know on the 19th when we were emailing, you were going to have to be back in the United States? You know, what has your world looked like for the last week?
1: Yes. When we first connected on the 19th, I, you know, was really looking forward to speaking with you because I really felt that at that time, and, you know, as we were talking before, it seems like daily updates, if not honestly hourly updates Mm -hmm. with the news. um, I felt like there wasn't enough coverage about the fact that a lot of contract workers were economically going to be decimated by this pandemic, and that there was so much, um, understandably, um, concern around the health implications of it, but not necessarily the economic ones. Of course, I think that it was starting to surface um and certainly in my own community of musicians and a lot of contract workers as concerts were being cancelled and there was a lot of predictive concern over well you know our concerts in three weeks but should we go ahead and cancel and just cut our losses so there was a lot of economic concerns that at the time i didn't really feel like were necessarily and understand understandably not being um sort of taken into account. So I was really looking forward to actually talking to you about that. Um, But then I feel like within the next few days, um, the travel ban that was initially not inclusive of the UK was Mm -hmm. then included. And then maybe the next few days after that, there were really heightened warnings for Americans abroad to return home or to anticipate staying abroad indefinitely. And uh, lots of borders closing down and um, containment procedures. And so I was originally scheduled to um, fly back to St. Louis, actually, on April 5th. And so I sort of was looking forward, honestly, to having just, I don't know, two, three weeks of, uh, you know, some self-quarantine. But that was also when the uh, weather in London was also turning to a really beautiful, I don't know, spring-like Uh, temperatures. And so I just sort of thought, this would be great, you know, I'll just have a very peaceful but cautious um, two, three weeks. Um, As I was watching the news, like everybody else was, I'm sure it really became obvious that uh, I didn't want to take the risk of waiting two, three weeks and possibly being told uh, the situation is of, you know, grave concern, and we're just not allowing anybody um, citizens or permanent residents to enter until this is all contained. So I took my chances and traveled, um, made arrangements to travel over the weekend um, uh, on Tuesday. And uh, there were flights being canceled. And in fact, my flight back to Arkansas was a day after because the initial flight that was supposed to connect me got canceled. Mm. And um, then I was on like a five o'clock Uh, Flight, even though um, there were earlier flights because all of those had been canceled. So uh, on the day that I was traveling, about half of the domestic flights were all canceled. And then on my flight, um, just on Wednesday, um, two days ago, there were only three people. And it was a really eerie uh, situation. Um, You know, I had some friends who basically... I think we're trying to infuse a little bit of humor and lightheartedness and say, Oh, I've always wanted to have a private jet experience (laughs) and now you get to have it and granted, you know, it did cross my mind, but I don't know if any of your listeners have recently done kind of domestic travel or just any kind of travel where they've been in completely empty airports with shops closed down and maybe three or 10 people on a commercial plane. It's really, really eerie. Mm. And, um, I didn't, it's not a luxurious experience to be um, so devoid of people. And being an introvert, again, I sort of thought, oh, this is not socially going to affect me a lot. But it's, I don't know, it um, it kind of triggers sort of an existential <laughs> fear or, I don't know, um, just uh, of being left out into this wild openness um, and wondering where all the people are. <laughs> <Yeah>. So... Um, <laughs> It was a short flight, but um, it was it was pretty surreal.
0: Yeah. Wow. And so, what was your flight? That that was the flight from Chicago to Fayetteville that you're describing. Is that correct?
1: Yes. And I went into to check in, and um, you know uh, they gave me the option to do a seat assignment. And I noticed I was all the way in the back, and so I sort of thought, well, there's only nine people on the plane, so I might as well just choose somewhere in the middle or just someplace closer. And I don't know what had happened by the time that I made that um, seat assignment. And by the time I actually boarded the plane, there were only three people. So I don't know if it was just outdated information, but I already thought nine people was pretty extreme. Mm -hmm. And granted, I don't think there were going to be that many people traveling from Chicago to Arkansas that day anyway, but I've, I've never been on such an empty trip before.
0: Mm -hmm. And as
1: you know, XNA also is only allowing for passengers to enter the airport. Um, And I think all the garages are also closed. So Mm. if you're, if passengers are being picked up, it's loading zone only.
0: Wow. Yeah. So just empty all, all around.
1: Right. Right.
0: (laughs) And just the, the, the previous day, I believe you said you, you came over on an international flight. Was, was that, similar feelings of unease, of eeriness around the airport that you left from and the Chicago airport?
1: Yes, it was a little more packed. I would say with that international flight, it was maybe about 50%. But um, all the shops were closed. It was day two of the UK lockdown. They announced a lockdown on Sunday night, so I guess day and a half or so. So I think um, the shops had already been closed prior to that, but I think Sunday was sort of the strictest measure that was put into place. Um, And uh, basically it was just citizens and permanent residents. And so I, for example, just a few... um, people before me, there was um, someone who was on a J-1 visa, which I believe is a exchange student or um, exchange um, professorship visa. And she was traveling with her partner, who I assume was American. So they were traveling together and um, I just hear all of a sudden, I'm sorry, you can't board. Uh, J-1 visas don't count. They're not permanent residencies. They're, they're considered temporary visas. And I just don't think that they accounted for that. Mm. Um, policies are changing. And I think there was some sort of grace period maybe put into place at some point. So I just don't know. I mean, I, to be honest, have a hard time keeping up with all the different developments. Right. Um, but it was really emotional to see them basically what, you know, having to see her be left behind with no plan as to what would happen. Um, so he, he traveled and he boarded and, um, and she basically, I think, you know, just had to wait around and see what, what is going to happen with all of this.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, um, I feel like there's been, it's, it seems, you know, I, I have not left Arkansas, but it just seems like there's a lot of, uh, unknown, uh, a lot of chaos, everywhere right now while people are trying to get the details of of what can happen and what is happening and and what they can do and uh, you know a couple weeks ago when the first you, you mentioned the first travel ban was in place that did not originally include include the UK. Uh, right. You know, we were hearing all these stories coming out of, of Americans in Europe who were panicking because they thought that included them and, you know, it didn't, but you know, there was a lot of misinformation and a lot of confusion and a lot of, you know, we were seeing footage coming out of the airports where people are stressed and they're in these mile long lines and they're scared. Um, was there any sense of that in the UK when this announcement was made that there was going to now be a travel ban on the UK and and you've reached the point where you felt like you needed to go ahead and leave?
1: Well, so most of the people that I was speaking with were not expats. Hmm. So they or if they were, they had already kind of made peace with the idea that they were just going to stay abroad because they had been living there for quite some time and they weren't um, temporary visitors like I was. But what was interesting to me, and of course, I wasn't sort of serving all the different boroughs of London, but um, just the particular sort of block that I was in, I felt that there was sort of a... um, a slow response to recognize the severity um, and the magnitude of it. And I don't know, maybe this is every country's story. I don't know. But um, maybe because it's unfamiliar, maybe because in certain situations like Ebola or SARS, it had been relatively well-contained. But I just felt that it took a while to kind of galvanize everybody. I mean, I think even from the government, you know, I think the lockdown was uh, just, you know, when it was announced just last Sunday, people certainly had been reading about it for several weeks prior to that. Mm. Um, What was interesting, though, is um, there were definitely shortages of hand sanitizers um, and eggs, um, and they were rationing them out. Um, But in general, it was this weird mixture of feeling like life was sort of as normal as could be. Um, and that there was maybe some denial um, or lack of awareness as to what could be coming without more protective measures in place. Um, And also panic. Like I felt that all three of those things sort of coexisted together, depending on kind of what aspect of life you might be encountering that day. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've, I haven't been in large crowds of people where you know you sort of have been reading or seeing in um, other national news where people are sort of raiding um, large supermarkets and there's sort of a shortage of, of supplies for weeks um, as people sort of stockpile things that they feel that they need. Um, but I did have a friend out in California who recently told me that she went out to Costco and was surprised by her own emotional reaction, being in the middle of a crowd as they were all sort of raiding uh, the toilet paper Mm -hmm. um, shelves. And it's interesting, because there again, too, I kind of was listening to her story, going through all the different emotions of, to be honest, it's a little bit ridiculous. And Mm -hmm. so to be honest, there was kind of a chuckle that came out when, you know, in my mind, when she first said that, because again, it's also ridicules, you know, the kind of mass sort of a rationality and out of all of the different things that people might hoard toilet paper you know and so on the one hand i i have to admit you know there was a part of me that was chuckling about it but then as she went on with her story um i don't know i really started to the gravity of the situation really started to sink in for me because um you know uh, i grew up in la and so just hearing her story made me think of the LA riots. Mm. Um, and again, I wasn't necessarily in front and center of like the raiding and the looting and the violence that had happened. But, um, it, you know, growing up, it was kind of traumatic to just see to see all of that. And just hearing her describe sort of the madness in the grocery stores, um, it made me, I don't know, it, it kind of brought back those childhood memories of that kind of, I don't know sort of the insanity of a situation gone uncontrolled um even even if it's just a moment and even if there isn't like sustained aggression or violence or anything like that and my friend wasn't hurt but at the same time i think she was extremely disillusioned at that moment that Mm. humanity had kind of come to this point um, and not necessarily a criticism against those people, but just the situation that we find ourselves living in at the moment. And she found herself kind of um, heartbroken by humanity at that point and said that she, was, she wasn't she was even able to explain why she was so upset about this, but that even before she could explain it or um, identify what was going on emotionally, she found herself tearing up about it and having, like, a a miniature breakdown. Um, And it's also to the point where she's now trying to avoid large grocery stores. Mm -hmm. Um, And, of course, now California's, you know, very strict lockdown status. And so um, it's different than what we're experiencing in Fayetteville. But um, that story really, I still think about that. You know, she was telling me that just a few days ago. But I still think about what things will look like um, I'm, I'm optimistic, I hope as most people are, that we will survive this. And obviously there'll be a lot of things to discuss about what we learn and how to move forward from a, a policy and systems point of view. Um, as a musician and as an artist, I, I just feel like there'll be so much trauma and healing that will need to happen. Mm. Um, I also remember like most people do how, um, airport travel changed forever after 9/11. Yes, we're still traveling and traveling is still fun and all of that. but um, you know I still remember the days when the cockpit tor- the cockpit door used to be open and family and friends could actually say goodbye to you and give you a hug uh, right before you boarded. Um, and I distinctly remember now not being you know 9/11 changing that forever. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder sometimes after we survived this, how classical music and large gatherings um i don't know just the way in which we deal with people will change um after having experienced something like this i feel that at least for me there was already a large presence of possibly fears of large gatherings in public spaces because of terrorism and mass shootings Mm -hmm. and random acts of violence that would happen in these public spaces anyway. And now on top of possible terrorism and violence, I just wonder with disease now being included in that, what, what will our cultural landscape look like where our art form has developed to, I don't know, rely on large audiences?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And we're seeing... Some temporary response to that. You know, yes. a lot of people are are putting on virtual concerts, and and um, I've I've even seen some interesting things being put together, uh, like social distancing concerts where it is still happening in person, but it's like a drive up event, and, you know you keep your distance from the other audience members, so obviously not as large a gathering. Um, so yes, it will be really interesting to see after. We are on the other side of this eventually. um, Yeah. How those temporary measures go back into becoming the new normal.
1: Right, right. And that's the other thing, too. I was also talking with a friend saying, you know, this doesn't have to be all doom and gloom. There are definitely silver linings. It's been really interesting and inspiring to see. Um, how people are basically reinventing old technology. I mean, we've had video conferencing apps and online technologies, um, social media, you know, for years. And yet I feel now is the first time that people have really um, been forced to kind of maximize their capacities. Mm -hmm. So that's really been, um, I think, a real silver lining for me.
0: Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to talk about um, some of the things you were seeing uh, right before, you know, right at the beginning of all of this when you were still in London and some of the things you were discussing at the beginning about, you know, the economic aspects that you felt like people maybe weren't thinking about. Um, But just really quick to go back. uh, So so how long were you in London? What were you there for? If you don't mind me sharing, you know, where were you staying? Uh, Can you share any of those details with us?
1: Yes. So I was there basically uh, for the academic year. I took a year off. um, So I was in and out, but I basically um, was stationed and based there since um, last academic year. So Mm. last August and was supposed to stay there um, until, well, my plan was uh, sometime around end of April. Um, And I was going there with the idea of, basically pursuing some project based um, ensembles and performances, and to basically do a lot of performances, because um, like any sort of major city, there's just so much going on in the arts. And I had made a couple of contacts there prior because I was there in 2016, 2017 in Cambridge. Um, My work centres around um, the Arkansan composer Florence Price. Mm -hmm. And there's a London based orchestra that is very much invested in um, giving voices to underrepresented and historically underrepresented voices. And so um, it made sense for me to just try to invest and explore and deepen that that relationship and also just to see what else might find its way. So I was basically a freelancer. And so being at the university and being a salaried employee and being basically a teacher um, who does performances Uh, i tell you it was super interesting as an american already going to london so there's already that cultural experience there but then to also change hats and go from basically a salaried artist to a contract worker Hmm. um and uh so i was living basically um most of your listeners will know that london is basically uh, structured in sort of these concentric circles. So the center of London is zone one, and then it just kind of spreads out in the, the farther away from the city you go, it's sort of zone two, zone three, all the way to zone nine. And um, that also helps with the, the tube system. Um, mm-hmm. So I was living in zone two, North London, um, Borough, uh, Belsize Park. So it's right where sort of Hampstead Heath is. It's a very kind of naturey part of the city um really beautiful um but yet still only about 30 minutes too bright into um, central london so that was um you know just location-wise really really convenient um in terms of the freelance work i don't think it's any different than like new york or la or any of the other um sort of densely populated um cities you try to um, make a lot of contacts as you can. And as performers, especially violinists, um, so, there's like, I think, 30,000 violinists already in, just in the heart of London. Um, they, uh, they go through contractors and hire you a, as needed. Um, the rate of concerts are pretty rapid. Um, if somebody calls you and you're available, the concert may happen basically in two days wow. with two or three concerts. Um, and most people who freelance for years, basically, even though they're basically living, you know, project to project, will be able to rely on their prior business relationships to kind of get a rough gauge of how much they can expect to make, um, within a month, within a quarter, within a year. Um, so obviously when these concerts were canceled and by contract, um, they, They either happen, and you're paid, or you're not. Um, There isn't really uh, protective policies, although the musicians' union there does have some policies that basically say if you cancel an event, within a certain time period, you're guaranteed x percentage of the original payment. But when it's sort of um, acts of God or um, sort of unforeseen circumstances, I think basically all bets are off. And so many of these arts organizations rely on the incoming revenue from those performances to then turn around and pay the artists. So when the event doesn't happen, um, you know, everybody suffers. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I, I too, was supposed to go on um, an orchestra tour um, in two weeks that was Funny enough, it was actually going to be a North American tour. So for all these European musicians, they were very excited. Some of them who were going to be traveling to the U.S. for the first time. But many of them were from continental Europe. So obviously when that travel ban was put into place, that sort of uh, made it impossible for them. But then some of the U.K. musicians who were involved sort of said, well, but we can still travel. Um, and then the U.K. plan was then put <laughs> into place and it kind of killed off the project altogether. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Many of my musician friends live with no buffer, with no savings, like many contract workers. Mm -hmm. And I don't think um, it's an uncommon thing to say that none of us uh, financially, I think, would have been prepared for something like this. Um, And so many of them are fine with just a three-month savings or three-month buffer. But um, with our current timeline, many of them are very scared about. what options may be available because as you know, a lot of unemployment benefits do not really extend to contract workers hmm.
0: yeah, it's I, I feel like there's so many things going on in in every industry, every field, every person that if it's not the person in your office next to you, you know right it, it, if it can be uh, somebody you interact with every day but if you're not part of that field uh, there's innumerable um elements affecting everybody that i think it's it's hard for the rest of us you know not in not in that person's shoes to realize all of these things are going on with everybody around us every single element that's going to affect everybody
1: right right exactly and i think this has just shown the level of interconnectedness of everybody um socially professionally economically And, you know, yes, it's sort of an engineered recession, but I think what the musicians are also concerned about is, let's just say in three months, the country reopens for business. It doesn't necessarily mean that they will be able to recover. It's not an on and off switch. Mm -hmm. You know, financially, the damage would have already been done. And to recover those lost expenses uh, will take a very long time. I mean, three months of lost expenses will take double if not more to recover um not to mention there's only so much you can do it's not like um it's some hypothetical puzzle of well let's just work you know 200 Mm percent and then you'll recover it in three months time so um and not to mention you know audience reception as well i don't know I, i mean it's hard to predict how people will feel um I think there will need to be some sort of mourning period and transition period. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, it's it's this massive period of uncertainty.
0: Yeah. Um, But as as we discussed, you know, some people are are continuing along with with a show or a concert they would have had anyway but they're moving it to virtual some people um, have have shifted into okay what can we do mode what right. can we you know what can we do to number one keep people's spirits up to get them art to get them entertainment but also mm. people in the mode of what can we do to help our musicians what can we do to help these people that you're mentioning who are contract workers who all of a sudden have no uh income for this foreseeable future um and i would think that even among musicians even among artists would vary even by genre because you know an experimental um, electronic show has a different audience and might conceivably be able to transition online to a virtual field easier than a classical music concert so what are you seeing so far as far as I know you just returned to Fayetteville, so maybe this is more speaking from, you know, your international perspective or just on a whole, what are you seeing so far um, from the people you're interacting with? Uh, if you've heard anything from people in Fayetteville, you know, what are you seeing as far as, all right, what what are we doing? What are we doing to move forward in this moment?
1: Mm, I, I've i been seeing basically two kind of opposing um reactions i would say one is what you just spoke about which is a deep dive investigation into can how can technology and remote concertizing still continue to um be a source of monetization basically for artists um it's it's I mean, it's totally new territory Um, in terms of trying to substitute, let's say an orchestra concert with 400 tickets in a large auditorium. um, Maybe thousands of people are tuning in into a live stream um, accepting donations, but how does that necessarily work? How, How will it work for organizations? I think these are the questions that are still being discussed and still being worked through Mm -hmm. um and workshopped and so i think a lot of people have been finding a source of inspiration and strength and possibly reinvention um through again just re-examining the full capacities of technology to connect the other opposing sort of reaction actually is that a lot of musicians are looking for just economically how to triage their financial situation and are looking to pick up secondary skills as soon as possible, some of which ha- may have nothing to do with music. And in London, what's been interesting, its it had already been going on, um, and therefore I think maybe something like this presented the momentum for it to go full steam, is technology um, and coding. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of my musician friends, for example, were already coding on the side. Um, and now that this has happened, I think they're trying to look for ways in which they can continue to refine their skills um, and also continue to look for work. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was interesting for me as a brief um, you know, journey into being a freelance musician is the whole question also of identity. Um, being here and again, just working for the university Uh, on salary, I basically had always mm, relied on the definition of a professional musician being someone who basically um, supports themselves through their craft. Um, So you know, for me, that makes me a musician. And if I were to do something else like coding, um, and then I perform concerts in the evening, um, in my prior concept, that would be more like music as a hobby or as a serious as a serious amateur um and i've really had to interrogate my own kind of bias or maybe stereotype about that i never honestly had to really think about identity in that way and and maybe these are secondary questions anyway when Mm. people are thinking about basically how to pay their bills at the end of the month but i i do think it's Related and relevant and interesting. Definitely. Um, just what it means to have a portfolio career, and at what point does one or somebody else basically say, "Well, if you're uh, making a passive income through real estate, and you're also freelancing as a a web designer, and you're also freelancing as a coder, and then you're also doing arranging um, on the side." um and then you also perform concerts um are you a coder who you know <laughs> plays violin or are you a violinist who happens to code and i mean maybe these questions as i say are not important but um for me again it was completely eye opening to kind of mm-hmm. think about that um and to be honest a little refreshing because i think it is a lot for musicians especially just to be expected to do one thing for their entire lives. And I do think that um, it was both a source of income, but also, I don't know, a source of diversity, necessary diversity in any kind of professional development. It's just interesting now to see um, the mad rush to do it because of necessity, of economic necessity. So so anyway, yes, um, I'm just seeing a lot of um, people branching out and um, exploring avenues, especially in London, it seems with technology, for ways to um, hold themselves over until things kind of return back to, quote, normal.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's, yep, it's, again, like, like we've been discussing, just all of the things kind of coming about, unexpected things coming about um, through this situation is interesting and ex- inspiring um, in a time when everything is so uncertain and, and a bit scary. Right, right, yeah um, in talking about the uh, travel, the travel portion of our discussion, um, there was a question I wanted to ask and and I'm not sure the best way to ask it. honestly, I um, hate that it's even part of the conversation, but mm. I feel like it's an important part too, um, because unfortunately, we are seeing... Um, reports, stories coming about, uh, about people, how people are um, reacting really negatively to the situation. And I'm just wondering if you can share with me um, during your time in London, during your travel, and then being back in Arkansas, um, being of Asian descent, if you are experiencing any of these um, really horrible
1: interactions that people are, are reporting so i've been lucky enough that i haven't experienced any sort of accosting from strangers on the street um what's disturbing to me sometimes is kind of what i might see in comment sections Mm. um when somebody posts something when i'm seeing sort of live streams of even like press briefings and people are commenting um and uh, so that to me, I guess, is what makes it so um, pernicious is that a lot of it seems to be hidden and a lot of mm-hmm. it are people can still hide behind screens and really say what they feel. Um, but I don't know if anyone would actually say that to my face, but um, just being aware of its presence mm-hmm. Um London, of course, has also experienced, I'm sure you read, um, a lot of attacks um, that have been happening in central London, you know, which is considered one of the more, um, I think 50%, actually, um, of Londoners are um, basically not British, you know, and uh, it's a very international cosmopolitan city. And that's why so many people love it. Um, And yet, even in the heart of London, I think I was reading in the beginning of March, a Singaporean student was attacked, and um, there have been several accounts um, in London as well. Um, when I first came here, I, you know, to do my sort of grocery shop, I, I went to Walmart. And I have to be honest with you, I, I have to make sure that I don't let some of these biases get the best of me. Mm. There was a man who basically um, stopped. And he said, Hello, are you Chinese? And I have to say, Jocelyn, you know, just because of the the climate, you know, I immediately in my mind sort of got wide eyed. And I Mm -hmm. thought, Oh, my gosh, why are you asking me this question right now? (laughs) Um, And I said, Actually, I'm not. And I just wanted to move on. Mm -hmm. And then he said, Okay, well, then where are you from? And (laughs) I always try to answer this question a little bit. Oh, I don't know, like deviously. And I sort of say, Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm actually from California. (laughs) I'm from LA. And then he said, no, 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 that's not what I meant. You know, what's your ethnicity? And I, I sort of thought, well, I know that's what you meant. And I was just hoping that you would kind of accept that answer and move on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I said, well, I'm Korean. And he said, oh, that's really, uh, sorry, that's really interesting. I was just asking if you were Chinese because I've actually been studying Chinese for years. And I was, you know, I'm still looking for conversational partners and um, I've been taking Chinese lessons at the sort of local community. And so there was sort of a legitimate, um, you know, deeper reason for him asking these questions, but I, I found myself sort of on guard. Um, of course, yeah. And to be honest, that's the other thing about Arkansas, which, you know, I, whenever I travel and come back, it's just the openness of strangers to just um, have conversation that, I mean, could be quite involved. Um, because that usually doesn't happen in London. Mm. <laughs> People are so busy, you know, um, getting from point A to point B. Um, it's also, I don't think very cultural to basically be striking conversations with strangers. Um, so everyone kind of keeps their head down and for the most part, just keeps to business. and conversation is um, just practical. Mm. And so I become so used to that. Um, <laughs> and it's also considered, I guess, a form of respect to strangers as well, not to kind of take up their time. Um, So, you know, my first experience back, you know, a stranger is asking me my ethnicity. Um, I found myself completely on guard and took it negatively and assumed the worst. Um, But I just, you know, that's the other thing, too, is I I find that maybe maybe it's Arkansas. Maybe it's just the situation. I do find that some people are more willing maybe to be social than they might generally be. Mm because maybe they're looking for a little bit of social contact amidst all this social isolation. I don't know. Um, but all of that, just to say I've been lucky not to personally experience anything, but, um, I think the interesting thing is that it doesn't take a personal attack to be uh, maybe traumatized is too strong a word, maybe affected. Um, I've definitely been affected and it's definitely on my mind. And I think that's maybe the real sad situation in all of this is that, um, to be honest with you, I think about it all the time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said, I I wish it wasn't part of the conversation. Um, right. I, you know, would would rather not bring bring race into the conversation at all. Um, but it's just uh, been so striking to me to see people reacting the way that they are. Um, It it does, it just, it's like we've been discussing, you know, um, it's easy for me to not realize how this pandemic is affecting, you know, these workers in this industry over here or these people over here. I think it's another thing that's uh, probably pretty easy for uh, white people to not realize uh, or or realize, but then it's easy to go, oh, that's unfortunate, and then move on with their day. Whereas, like you said, it's, it's on your mind. Constantly. Exactly.
1: No, I'm so glad you're bringing this up, Jocelyn. And uh, I think it's so important. Um, a friend of mine also reminded me that after 9-11, there were so many attacks against, against Muslims. Mm-hmm. Um, there was so much effort on the CDC's part to name this virus COVID-19 and not like the Chinese flu or something like that. Um, you know, they were even talking about um, when there was the swine flu, so much of the pork industry sort of suffered. You know, so... The way in which we name and understand viruses, um, you know, has a deep impact, mm-hmm. for sure.
0: Absolutely, and yeah, thank you for for talking about that with me. Um, hopefully, it will, you know, continue to get better. Um, yes. You know, luckily, like you said, you've not um, had any direct uh, accosting. Um, hopefully, it stays that way. Yes. Um, but not to change the subject, but I do want mm. to shift to maybe something a little more lighthearted. Um, yes, I I uh, take it up so much of your time, but I would like to end on something a little a little more um, uplifting. Hopefully, yes. I'm wondering, yes. um, you know, what you see or or what you hope uh, the role of the arts will be in helping us. Get through this. Where where do we go from here? You know, where does our community of musicians go from here, and how are the arts going to help us get through this?
1: I really hope, um, and some of this is even beyond, you know, just the artistic community. But I really hope that this brings people together, and I think it already has been. So I guess I would just say I hope that it continues to bring people together, and um, that people who have already been valuing the arts. Um, will continue to, I don't know, reinvent and refine and um, invite those who may need a channel to express and explore uh, their emotions, which, let's face it, so much of it is pre-language. You know, when I was speaking earlier about my friend who was overwhelmed by her emotions, she basically said something that I feel all the time which is she said I don't even know why I was feeling the way that I was but it was definitely real and it was overwhelming and the fact that I actually couldn't put words to it or even explain why it was happening was what made them so powerful and I think back to my personal reasons for being so invested in music of course I was really young so a lot of it weren't you know, fully considered decisions, Mm. but um, they were definitely instinctual, which is I found it to be such a valuable and irreplaceable vessel for my emotions. Um, I mean, I think all art forms for me are so meaningful, but it just happened to be that sound was the first thing I suppose that entered my own life. And that love and that acknowledgement of power and that capacity to create community is something that I've always valued and have always tried to play my own little part in maintaining with other musicians and um, arts lovers. So I hope that something like this, although I would hope that it wouldn't take something like this maybe to bring the discussion to the fore, but I do think that because of our extraordinary times, it does force us to to come together and, you um, I don't know, um, learn to really support each other um, as artists and as people. So um, I definitely am optimistic, but I'm also aware of um, the cost that um, it'll incur, but I'm still optimistic. So if I can hold those two kind of <laughs> dissonant um, emotions together, I definitely have both where I just, I I acknowledge uh, sort of I don't know how traumatic this will be. I've been telling some of my friends, I feel like the whole world will need therapy after this, you know? Um, (laughs) And, uh, but I also hope that maybe music can be part of that therapy.
0: Yes. I, I think uh, the arts always seems to play a pretty significant role when people are are coming back from something personal, something global, Mm -hmm. something, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So I, I, am cautiously optimistic about, um, seeing where that will take us as well. But, but like you said, uh, also aware of the situation that we are still in and still going to be in for a while.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Um, well, Arjean, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us, um, for, all of your time. Um, I can't thank you enough, and we are just so glad to have you back in Fayetteville safely, Um, and hopefully we can um, start start moving forward as a community and and figuring out things we can do to come together, like you said.
1: Definitely. Thank you so much, Jocelyn. When um we first got connected. I sort of thought, wow, this seems really self-indulgent. You just want to interview me talking about me. <laughs> um so thank you. I should be the one thanking you for allowing such self-indulgence. Just talking about my own experiences and giving me a platform to do so so thank you no
0: it's been wonderful and for um just a just another slight touch of self-indulgence um where where can we find you do you have any upcoming projects we should look forward to you know do you want to point people to your website or social channels where can we find you
1: Ah, so um, I'm in the works right now um, with a colleague, uh, I think that you know, Katie Henrikson. Yes. Um, just want to kind of give a shout out to Katie Henrikson. That was the um, mutual friend try- who connected us. <laughs> exactly, exactly. She and I, um, it's in the very sort of formative stages, but we're going to try to see what we can do um, for uh, a remote salon. She's already done one, but we're kind of planning uh, future remote salons and um I need some time to kind of figure out the technology mm-hmm. and uh, the theme, but um, I will definitely give you more information. We're, we're roughly shooting for sort of mid-April, um, Okay, so in a few weeks.
0: Great. Well, uh, we will definitely be looking forward to that. And Arjean, thank you again so much.
1: Thank you so much. <music>